You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Vivian Kadari de Piero, the Chief Psychologist and Director of Research at Beyond Conflict, who also happen to be our partners in this Four or Network project. As a clinical psychologist, she focuses on the development and evaluation of accessible and culturally tailored approaches to trauma recovery among communities affected by violence and conflict across the globe. So in today's episode of our series, Vivian will touch upon the connection between unresolved trauma and the perpetuation of violence and how failure to address mental health and psychosocial support needs of extremist offenders may hamper rehabilitation and reintegration efforts of extremist offenders. Vivian, we're delighted to have you on the podcast and thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. Great. It's a pleasure. So maybe uh, we'll start um, with a little bit of scene setting. And I think it would be very interesting for uh, for me and for our listeners to hear what you mean when you speak about trauma. So, you know, through your research, how do you define trauma as a starting point? Yeah, so I tend to go for Judith Herman's definition of trauma, and she speaks of trauma as uh, something that shatters our expectations. So I tend to speak to people about trauma as an event that was so overwhelming that not only did it let them to feel extremely vulnerable while it was happening, it also made them or left them questioning kind of what they knew about the world and how predictable it was or how much control they had over it. So naturally an event like that leads people to correct and adapt their behavior in many different ways in an effort to preserve as or recover a sense of safety. So it's not really the event itself. It's really like our read of the event and how overwhelming it was that's going to make it traumatic. So very much how it impacts the individual, the person in those circumstances. Um, that's, that's a really clear definition. Thank you. Um, um, and I think we know and we've certainly through this podcast explored this um, with, with a lot of the guests, but there is... Um, clearly a relationship between trauma and extremist violence and that relationship is extremely complex and I suppose um, it would be interesting to learn from you what your research on trauma, adversity and violent extremism has revealed and just maybe to get a sense of what um, your perspective is on the relationship between trauma and terrorism and violent extremism. Yeah, so like you said, it's an incredibly complex and nuanced issue, and there really is no straightforward prediction from one or the other that one will lead to that either like engaging in this type of of activities will be traumatic to the person or that having past trauma will lead a person to engage in these types of activities. But what we do know from and something that we have been working very hard at at Beyond Conflict, it's to really help people understand that 
having experienced trauma and the adaptations that come after an individual or a community experiences trauma can really become a barrier towards a lot of the types of things that we want to see in a healthy society where somebody finds a role and somebody feels a sense of belonging. So I think uh, when I think about the relation between those two, that's something that I tend to focus my attention on most. How having experienced trauma and this sense of I no longer belong, I can no longer trust us around me, I no longer believe what this narrative I have built around who I am and who and what it and what things mean to me has now kind of broken up and I'm building a new one. And in that moment of vulnerability, you are and you can be a lot more vulnerable towards the recruitment messages of certain groups. And then that can be a precipitating factor that leads you to those types of activities. Mm -hmm. And I guess we see this, I mean, this is not something that those recruiters are unaware of. I mean, they, they across, you know, a range of extremist and violent extremist organizations, they target those types of people who, for whatever reason, appear to be vulnerable. One of the things that you, uh, I thought was interesting, you argued in an article uh, which you had published last year, you argued that a discussion of the connection between adversity, mental illness and violent extremism is at its core a discussion of marginalization and the erosion of the so- so societal protective factors that could help to prevent violent extremism. So that's, that's quite a mouthful, but I'd love to maybe hear you expand on that a little bit and and what that what that really means in terms of those protective factors yes absolutely so the way to think about it is it is society that ultimately defines what a healthy or unhealthy behavior from a standpoint of mental health is so society will uh, kind of indicate okay so a deviation from the norm on say intelligence towards like the upper end it's something that we reward and we see as something that is to be celebrated and so at a deviation uh on towards the lower end perhaps is somebody that now we are as a society as are thinking like needs more scaffolding needs more support it is it's a difference that we are noticing based on a norm that we're establishing and a standard that we're establishing of what is acceptable and what is necessary and what is not and the same is true about ideology And when we will sort of say what deviations from the norm in terms of ideology are socially acceptable and which ones are now radical in a way that is not like artistic genius, but now we're talking about something else, something darker, something more dangerous. So in as much as it's society that's dictating these standards and it can shift culturally and it has shifted through time. Right. We had times where like being a woman wanting to vote was something deviant. And Mm. now it's just entirely natural. But if we look at history, we can see how oftentimes like what has been pathological from a mental health perspective and what has been ideologically uh, unacceptable kind of tend to be merged. We tend to put this um, this lens of pathological and it's like ideological deviations. And so we marginalize these, uh, these, these individuals that are on the extremes of the norm. And when we marginalize people, then we are very much kind of severing the connection with 
a lot of the protective factors around community building, allowing somebody to find a role that means that is meaningful to them, allowing somebody to have that feedback of like, yes, you are valuable here. And so not having that from a community, feeling this sense of I'm foreign, I'm rejected, I'm not wanted. That is something that is going to leave people in this again, in this space of like in the margins where you're most vulnerable, when you're trying to, you're, we are all craving that belonging. And when you don't find it in your original community and then you feel attacked by that rejection from the community, then you're going to be searching for where can I belong? And so that goes back to your comment before, like recruiters know this, right? And so mm-hmm. they are going to really tap into that sense of vulnerability and um at Beyond Conflict, we also speak about something called competitive victimhood, where it's like this idea that like my suffering is very much different from yours. I have suffered more and and you're failing to see it. And, and so in this, like, who can see it? Who can see it? And here comes a recruiter who says, yes, you have mm-hmm. been so wrong. Mm-hmm. We get it. Come. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that resonates with people from when they're in the margins and then in mm-hmm. that long place. Uh, actually, it's it's um, it's interesting you brought up the, this concept of competitive victimhood. I was going to ask you about victimhood and whether, you know, whether sometimes these kind of feelings are illegitimate or, you know, or can be perhaps relied on as an excuse as opposed to sort of being a, a genuine sense of um, a victimhood. Or have you encountered that? I think that's a complicated topic because I guess how I have encountered it is in a more, in a less, a little bit away from the space of radical uh, uh, thinking and terrorism and more in my day-to-day interactions with patients who might come and question like, well, was my experience truly traumatic? Like compared to the grand scheme of things and what other people experience as trauma, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that there's a lot of questioning that we do also as a society of like what type of suffering warrants permission for people's emotional reactions. Yes. And the truth is that we are all equipped with different life circumstances that give us different levels of coping mechanisms and coping resources. Mm-hmm. So there is, of course, a, a, a big consideration that needs to be given to this question. And there are people who would, uh, in a way, try to portray themselves as more vulnerable than they are if there's something to be gained out of presenting themselves as, as coming from this place of vulnerability. But I think that I would rather always err in the side of caution, because at the end of the day, the approach that we have to any type of person, whether they're presenting as having been extremely traumatized or not, should be a trauma-informed approach, where we are really acknowledging that the person is more than the moment that we see in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a story that they bring with them, and that our failure to recognize that story and our failure to make room for the emotions that arise because of that story can really rupture our ability to relate in the present moment, right? And so whether it's faint or not, there is room for trauma awareness, and there's mm-hmm. room for the constructive things that can come from bringing that trauma awareness to the room. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting and explains it very well. Um, one of the themes that has, of course, um, inev- inevitably come up in our discussions, especially in um, in the context of reintegration and, you know, post-release and how uh, former extremists or, or violent extremists um, or terrorists 
actually go about reintegrating into society. And that's a big focus, of course, of the 4R network. And stigma is is a word that just continuously crops up. Um, you know, the stigma associated with the former actions and and former um, perhaps crimes of, of those former extremists and then how you overcome that in terms of uh, reintegration into society. What So what is your view on the toll of stigma on mental health and and then on on recovery i'm sure that's something you're you're seeing all the time yes absolutely and it is a big factor so we have uh as, the way i see it is you, you live through a stressor or a traumatic event or a series of stressors and then you develop symptoms as a reaction to what happened and then the symptoms themselves become a new source of stress and so now you're in this loop uh, and this feedback loop that is constantly adding more stressors. So, oh, because I was now having struggles regulating my emotions, I have now lost my job or lost this important relationship. And now here's a new stressor. And now I become even more symptomatic. And so it becomes like this, this, this whirlpool that people get stuck in. And so the same is true when we think about the efforts that somebody might be making to reintegrate. The truth is that if we have not addressed the vulnerabilities that left that person in this place where they were kind of ready to join an extremist group to begin with, those vulnerabilities are coming with them when they're trying now to reintegrate. That uh, difficulty with tolerance of frustration or, or those failures to like sort of regulate those intense emotions are coming with them and they're coming with them to an extremely challenging situation where a community is rightfully guarded against the idea of of simply welcoming people with open arms, right? We have to see it both ways, the same way that we are making an effort to understand the impact of story and history and like life experiences on the person that we're seeking to reintegrate. We also have to see the experiences of the community and also validate that their reactions are coming from the same place. There was a threat. I'm adapting to it the best I can. I'm trying to preserve safety. I think that creating these places where we give both the community and the person being uh, reintegrated awareness of where reactions come from, of, you know, the guardedness that you see in your community, that is stigma, this rejection that is coming from, like, you have been labeled and you are, and in this label, we are identifying you as risky, as dangerous, as something foreign, something other, something we must push against, right? Giving people the preparing people for that rather than presenting them as a view of the world that's all pink and oh yes come back we'll be welcome like and just like presenting them like no it will be challenging these are the types of reactions that you might see and this is where they're coming from they're coming from a place of people doing the best they can to like deal with some a new situation that feels scary that feels frightening that it's not a direct attack on 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 you it's like the way that we're wired to protect ourselves the same way that you are wired to protect yourself, like creating that awareness and priming people to sort of see the stigma because stopping that stigma from happening is going to be a lot harder than preparing the person mm -hmm. and an individual level to address the stigma when it comes. And so when you see these reactions from your community, what are things that you could do to handle it individually? How, how would you choose to handle it in the moment with the person? Sort of presenting the hypotheticals in advance and acknowledging that the community will be not exactly as welcoming mm -hmm. as would be ideal for somebody who's trying to find a new sense of belonging, right? Mm -hmm. And then 
similar things can be done with the community of like making, letting them become aware of you have learned a series of rules, a series of stereotypes that are there and are shared with those around you as a way to protect yourself. And so the way I say it to a lot of people is like you can have that rule book of safety and you can hold it very closely in front of your eyes and only see the rules and you will be very, very safe. But can we hold the rules a little bit further down? So like you're don't ignore them. The rules were there for a reason. You are guarded for a reason. But can we give the person in front of us the benefit of the doubt and just like see them? In the present mm-hmm. moment, or are we are just going to like only see the rules and not see the reality? Because the reality is that a person is making an effort for change. But if we're only seeing our rules and our criteria of like who should be marginalized, then we don't have that um, window of opportunity of creating the link back. So mm-hmm. stigma is a lot of what is the, uh, what becomes the barrier in that moment of reintegration. And there are tools with which we can validate it. And from this moment of like understanding where it's coming from, create a a room for change. Mm-hmm. As you've said, it's obviously it's much easier to prepare the individual than to prepare the community. Um, and I'm interested in in uh, something that you uh, also previously uh, wrote around the integration of mental health and psychosocial support. And uh, I think you were saying that it's essential to to look at communities and their tolerance of pathology. What do you mean by that? Um, and I know you've you've mentioned some ways to kind of help communities deal with or overlook or overcome the stigma. But um, what do you mean by that tolerance of pathology? Yeah, I think it ties a lot to what we were just speaking about in the sense of like people's stigma and their rejection mm-hmm. of something that feels different. And oftentimes the rejection of something that feels different comes from this place of I just don't know how to deal. I don't have a rule. I don't know what to expect. This is now unpredictable. I think information sharing is incredibly powerful because it creates a sense of control. People operate from a place of fear when they don't have a sense of what's going to come next. And so giving communities a lot of education around what different pathologies might look like, how we can help. So somebody's having, say, a nervous breakdown, or like what they would call a nervous breakdown, and they're having a panic attack. And what are the things that we can do? What works? What does not work? It's like when people have more of a sense of ease with engaging with behaviors that are not what they would consider regulated or normative, then they have a bigger tolerance of it. They will be more intolerant of it. The more foreign it feels and the more ill-equipped they feel to work with it. And so the, the same is true with this idea of like reintegrating somebody from an extremist group back to a community. They can come with this label and it's like, it's a boogeyman, right? Like, I, I don't know a lot about it. I just know that there is something about terrorism and they were released and what are the consequences? And I read something in a news article, but giving people very clear information, a lot of clarity, setting clear expectations, it really gives people back this sense of control. And then that's where there's this bigger tolerance towards like what's not normative and what is potentially pathological. Just give them the tools to address it, and then they won't be as afraid. So I suppose um, I'd like to ask, why is all of this important? You know, um, the integration of mental health and uh, psychosocial support into the process, both when it comes to preventing violent extremism and also when it comes to rehabilitation and reintegration. You know, do you think it's it's worthwhile pursuing um, 
a, a more formalized effort to integrate that approach and that that process into uh, into prevention as policymakers and uh, law enforcement and others grapple with these issues. Absolutely. I think that there is, I, the way I like to think about the importance of integrating mental health and psychosocial support into basically any type of activity where we are engaging with other people is to help people like imagine the scenario of how much more harder it is to have a conversation with somebody after emotions are running high. So after people are screaming and angry, how many times in people's own experience with their relationships, with their family, with their friends, with coworkers, how often have they actually achieved a productive outcome to a discussion when people were calm? and regulated versus when people were already so angry that they were screaming at each other. And the truth is that it's very hard to find a space that is productive and constructive and where people can actually listen to each other once the emotions are high. So having like a better sense of where people's ability to tolerate frustration, to regulate emotions, to disentangle their sense of worth from the present moment discussion is a key tool in order to create the spaces for productive growth and for reconciliation in many, many settings, which is, again, like what Beyond Conflict has been trying to bring with this idea of integrating mental health and psychosocial support to the humanitarian and peace building space. I think specifically in the space of de-radicalization and reintegration, there are so many incredible people working so hard to create programming and to create initiatives and to understand this phenomenon and finding the most effective ways of achieving reintegration. And oftentimes when we're designing these programs, we're thinking again of the norm, what people usually respond like, what people usually would want. And the thing that I find fascinating about trauma specifically, is that it often is the least intuitive type of, um, I, I hate the word disorder. So like the, the least intuitive part, type of reaction, right? So where in other places we see somebody in distress and our gut feeling is like, let's give them a hug. When you're speaking with somebody who has experienced something traumatic, that might be the worst thing that you can do. Like it really is one where if you really do have to rely on the research more than on your gut feeling, because the reaction, again, because it's coming from this sense of the world no longer makes sense. I'm making new rules about how I operate in the world. Their reaction from folks that have experienced a lot of trauma tends to be counterintuitive. And it's not something that somebody without trauma education can just easily guess, easily predict, and easily adapt around. So really relying on the wealth of information that already exists out there can better equip the people who are working already in the space of reintegration to be ready for the challenge of having these programs work for everybody, for the folks who are not affected and impacted by trauma, and for, for those who are. And so I think that given that they have already come so far in like creating the program, then let's also like go that extra step of thinking and how can this program really meet the needs of every person that might come through. And so understanding that some folks are going to have the barrier that comes with a history of trauma that is contributing to why they don't feel the belonging, why they feel the rejection, why they feel the sense of threat, why they have this like competitive victimhood. Like when you understand that part, then you're more equipped to make your program work. If you don't, 
then you're kind of frustrating yourself and frustrating the person by putting them through all of these programs and these and these initiatives and not having it work. Um, that might be a little abstract. The way I explain it more is, you know, for example, one of the reconciliation uh, programs that often get promoted is this idea of like contact theory of like let's put people from either sides of the opposing party together and if they spend enough time together having like a positive interaction they're going to start thinking differently of the other so for most people that might work but if you're somebody whose life experiences have led you to feel extremely guarded about somebody new to assume that they may have and the intention to hurt you actually have made it difficult for you to like read the emotions in the person's face and understand what they might be intending emotionally when they're interacting with you. That contact, that forced moment of interacting together is not going to be a positive experience. It's not going to lead to the outcome that you thought it was going to lead because it wasn't a positive contact. And so having this awareness of not everybody will react the same way, how can we make this actually a positive situation for those folks? Then that is going to make your program all the more more productive and a much more better use of your time. In one of, I think in our first episode uh, where I spoke with Uncal, she said that instead of asking, you know, what is wrong with you when we're speaking to extremist offenders, we should be uh, asking the question, what happened to you? So I think what you, everything that you have said very much stacks up with that. Just a, a maybe a follow follow on question is, you know, in the context of reintegration and rehabilitation, do you think that the trauma which may have been experienced um, previously by by a, an extremist offender, you know, that it can potentially help to shape their pathway out of the, um, the place that they find themselves in terms of um, offending or being part of um, an extremist group. Is there, you know, I suppose I'm kind of trying to flip it around a little bit and see, you know, is there are there positives that can be taken uh, from those previous experiences that can help to inform the reintegration process and uh, and actually help it along? I think so. I, I love the way that Jankal described that. And I think that after that question, I guess the next question is then what do you want to happen next? So what happened to you? And uh, what would you like to see happen next? Mm -hmm. Because that is where we're shifting now from the meaning making that the person might have made done about their past experiences to now really saying like, okay, and this happened. And also you did this. And this is not this is not the end of your story. This is an ongoing story. Here comes a new chapter. Mm-hmm. Let's think forward now. What do you want to see happen? And I think that people's answers are always going to be tapping into the same themes of belonging, of finding a sense of importance, of finding value and meaning. And so giving the a person the opportunity of saying, like, I'm with you here. I see that you're like, you're not a dumb book. Like, it's not that this happened to you and then you did this and now you are forever a tourist. Like, what happens next? Where are we going now? The same way that something extremely dramatic might have happened in your past and set you in a given course, a new thing can happen. A positive thing can happen that sets you in an entirely different one. So it's like this idea again of like the shattered expectation of the trauma. Other things can shatter our expectations of what's going to come next. Like allow life to surprise you in a way and to see that there's always a new chapter that you can write. 
And so I, I, I really like that, like the, the way that John Carl shifts the what's wrong, because again, it's like this welcoming of like the past story. And then that also let's bring the idea that we continue, our brains continue to have neuroplasticity and reshape and reform those neural pathways. Like there's so much potential as long as we're alive to reinvent ourselves. Mm-hmm. So what do you want to see happen next? That's a very upbeat and positive um, uh, thought, I think. And we're 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 almost at the end of our discussion, um, so it's good that we're uh, we're we're on a on a positive note. But maybe just a final question, and I I often ask this um, of experts at the end of the podcast. Um, from your professional experience um, and from much of what we've discussed, what are what would be your recommendations to policymakers and practitioners who are you know, striving to reduce recidivism, to, um, you know, to improve the chances of reintegration and rehabilitation of former extremist offenders? Are there specific initiatives or steps that they can take to make this a reality? Yes, uh, I will go back to my idea of like people need to really rely on the research and inform themselves of the research about what's out there with trauma. I think, you know, with the, it's a positive that I see that people are in general, globally, a lot more interested in issues related to trauma and mental health. And that comes, unfortunately, with the risk that there's a lot of bad information out there being shared for social media and then the quick posts that really make this complicated issues very like bullet point takeaways that are not that don't give it again the nuance that they're that they need. I would recommend that everybody working in this space from this policy making space that is thinking about the reintegration of mental health and psychosocial support to their programs. They think and they look to um experts in the that are really not just experts on like what the research says that are in their lab, but like also experts in making that translational and taking that information from the labs to something that's practical for them, but still very much science informed and make room for more evidence to to grow because we need that. We need to continue to question what we know, what we have assumed is true so far and continue to innovate in the ways that we apply and we think about this pathologies and these ways of thinking and these behaviors, because the more that we understand it, the more equipped we'll be to deal with them. So I think that there's always room for science and that we should make room for science and to be science informed. Yeah, uh, I, I think uh, I think your answer um, not only covers the process of reintegration, but of course, also prevention. So uh, thank you uh, very much. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Vivian, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. Um, and uh, I want want to wish you every uh, every success and the best of luck with all of your future research and uh, endeavors in this space. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.